Good evening. Welcome to Refuge, where we are a safe place for all people to restore and explore their faith in Jesus and his church. And tonight we're wrapping up our series of the difficult truths of Jesus, like big sigh of relief, right? Like, let's get out of this. Let's get back to the easy stuff. You know, it's not the gospel if it's I don't even remember because I got it wrong more times than not. I don't even know if I'm getting it right. But something that I've been asking myself and that I've been coming back to um, throughout this series is that isn't all truth difficult? On some level, isn't all truth hard to hear or hard to swallow or hard to believe? Truth, the truth hurts, right? Anybody heard that, that cliche? Cliches are cliches for a reason. It's because there's some truth to it and the truth hurts. Like if I ask my partner if I'm being too much and she tells the truth and says yes, hurts my feelings a little bit because I'm never too much, right? (laughs) It wasn't a joke, but whatevs, y'all. It hurts my feelings because on some level, all truth is hard to hear. But the beauty of the difficult truth that we've been talking about over the last few weeks is that Jesus allows us to wrestle with his truth. Is that he doesn't just tell us truth, tell us hard things, and just makes us sit with them, makes us believe them. We get to explore and restore our faith in the difficult truth. And I love um, what Refuge stands for is that we are a church where we get to explore and restore that faith. And the difficult truth that I wrestle with is a pastor, as a pastor and a teacher, is I wrestle with the hard truth that the people to whom I'm teaching might not walk away with anything. Just kidding. Well, I do wrestle with that, that, that I spend all this time coming up with a sermon and, and, you, and you might not walk out learning anything or you might not put into practice what I teach. But the difficult truth of, be, truth of being a Christian is that sometimes we just walk out of church and we don't ever come back to that sermon or we don't ever wrestle with what's being taught. You know, we started this year going through the unhurried way of Jesus. We went through rhythms and practices to help us become better apprentices, practices we can incorporate into our lives that would make us better Christians, better people, better partners, parents, employees. We went through all these practices But they're difficult. Silence, solitude, simplicity, Sabbath are all very hard things to do, let alone say consecutively in a row like that. But let me, I want to pause briefly and just say this isn't a critique on you as people, and I'm not coming from a judgmental or condescending place. I'm coming from a place of truth. Because as amazing as my message on Sabbath was, I struggled to do it. Because taking an entire day to rest and worship and not worry about life is a difficult thing to do. Sitting still and being quiet is a difficult thing to do, especially if you have ADHD and you don't, your brain doesn't turn off. So I'm not judging you. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. This is simply just a confession and a difficult truth that I wrestle with. I've been teaching and preaching since I was about 23 years old. You know, like when you're in your early 20s and you know everything. 
I heard someone this this week on a podcast say, you uh, were really, in your early 20s, you were really loud and really wrong. And that just perfectly encapsulated me in my early 20s. Like I said, I've been, been teaching and preaching since I was in my early 20s, if not sooner in my high school years. And you know what? I had it all figured out. Jesus, theology, scripture, I knew it all. Forget the men through centuries and centuries and centuries who have been trying to figure it out. I got it. Just stop the work. I figured it out. So when I would teach and I would preach, it would come from the point of view is that you need this. You need to know this. You need to do this. You need to hear this because I don't. Because I've figured it out. This is just for you. And I stand here before you today confessing that I don't know it all. I don't do it all and I don't practice it all. Because the truth is is that it's difficult. All truth is difficult. The practices, the ways, and the truth of Jesus, they're hard. And he tells us as much in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus flat out tells us with difficult words that the life of a disciple is difficult, and there are very, very few who actually go down this road. And I've heard this preached in a lot of different ways, and usually it's the, the road to hell is, is big and wide. And even in the New Living Translation, it says the highway to hell, which <laughs> always makes me chuckle. Because I was like, was that written before or after the song? Because I don't know. But I, I don't, I, that is not what Jesus is saying here. It's very important when you're reading scripture to look at what's before and after the verse that you're reading. This one in particular is not about going to hell. It is about discipleship. The verse right before this is the golden rule. We all know that, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law of the prophets. Verses 13 and 14 is not, unless you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to hell. Jesus is enforcing the truth that loving people the way the law of the prophets tells us is hard. Not many are going to do it because to love the way Jesus truly loves is difficult. Following his way, his truth, and his life is narrow and difficult. There's a, the book that we're kind of using uh, here and there through this series is called The Difficult Words of Jesus. And I'd like to share a quote with you tonight from that book. It says, to understand the gospel, indeed to follow Jesus, should not be a continuing effort of making the teachings of Jesus less demanding. I want to read that line again because I want that to really sink into us tonight. I want that to kind of go with you as we go through this message is that this should not be a continuing effort of making the teachings of Jesus less demanding. Jesus never said being a disciple would be easy. To the contrary. But he did assure his followers that being a disciple would be worth their while. The homework this week was Luke chapter uh, 14, 25 through 23. And it says, now large crowds were traveling with him. And so he turned 
and said to them, and so like I love this this word picture is because I picture just thousands and thousands of people following Jesus. And as a preacher and as a teacher and as somebody who loves attention, that's like the dream. It's just like follow me, take my picture, put it on Instagram, let's Snapchat. Like that's the dream. And Jesus has like all these people following him around. And so you would think he would turn and give them some like good news, like something real, like I'm going to make sure you keep following me. And this is what he says. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Great. It was so uplifting, Jesus. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And quite honestly, if you have childhood trauma, the first part of that doesn't sound too hard. Know what I mean? Just just kidding. My mom's here. (laughs) In verse 27, he goes on to say, (laughs) and that's her, ladies and gentlemen. If you wonder where my need for attention comes from, right there. Jesus goes on to say, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who come against him with 20,000? So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. Jesus tells the people following him that unless they hate their father and mother, spouse and child, brother and sisters, even their very own life, they could not be his disciple. That's a tough truth. That's something hard to hear. Hate comes in degrees. Hating broccoli is not the same thing as hating a rival sports team, is not the same thing as hating somebody of a different political party. Hate is usually something they do to us through nasty texts, tweets, or hate-filled words, or big signs in downtown Fort Myers that says God hates blank. But the thing about hate is hate is taught, hate is learned. Usually when hate is mentioned in scripture, The Bible, it is directed towards the disciples. People are hating the disciples. People are hating Jesus. But here is the first time Jesus tells the disciples to direct the hate. Not at the Pharisees, not at the religious leaders, not at government leaders, not at the Democrats or the Republicans, but at their families. To hate their families. We are trained to hate one group and love another Like, it's very, very easy to hate our enemies. So, like, obviously, I'm a big Red Sox fan. Don't know if you caught on to that or not. Big Red Sox fan. And this is, we're in a rebuilding season. And if you don't know baseball talk, that's baseball talk for, they're sucking it up right now. So, it's like, we've been in a real rebuilding season for a while. But, win or lose, I'm a Red Sox fan. And if you know anything about baseball, you know that true devoted Red Sox fans hate the New York Yankees. 
like with a passion. Like anything blue or pinstriped or a stupid NY overlap, like I hate it. Like I can't even. Like if you're a Yankees fan, I'm not going to say it. I'll be nice. I'll be nice. No, I was just going to say get out, but you can stay. There's hope for your soul. Um, so I went to a Red Sox versus Yankee game in Fenway in Boston, and I watched as grown, drunken men got escorted out of the stadium for getting in physical altercations with people, with fans from the other team. Both sides, Red Sox fan and Yankees fans, were acting belligerent because that's how deep this rivalry runs. That's how deep this hatred goes is that, like, we just hate each other. I have a picture I'd like to share with you tonight. This is how long I've been a Red Sox fan. I know, like, oh my God, so cute. This is how long I've been a Red Sox fan. Now, I don't remember taking this picture. I don't, like, I, I'm too young. I don't, but I'm in my pink outfit, my frilly socks, and my Red Sox hat. And I don't remember taking this picture. But the thing about my hatred for the Yankees is, is that I learned it. Is that this cute, little, adorable cherub She doesn't know what the Yankees are. She doesn't know what rivalry is. All she knows is that she wants to wear a baseball hat to kindergarten. That's all she knows. My hatred for the Yankees was learned through the years as I learned to love and root for the Red Sox. I learned to hate the Yankees. And I can't switch off my hatred for the Yankees any more than I can turn it on for people that I love. I can't just automatically turn on hate. Hate and love are similar in that way in that they are both felt in the heart. If God came to me one day and told me, like he came face to face and looked at me with big fiery eyes and was like, Nicole, I want you to hate your mom, your partner, your child, your brother, and your sister, and that little dog too, which BT dubs, his name is Fenway Bark. So clever, like so clever, I know. But if God told me I needed to hate all these things that are important in my life, I would be like, for those reasons, I'm out. And I would withdraw from the game completely. So by using the language of hate with all its viscerally negative implications, Jesus is showing just how demanding the call to the kingdom of God is. Jesus demands loyalty, loyalty that is singularly focused. And the best way that he could express this to his, to the people following him at the time is to speak in unnatural and unethical terms like hating one's family. But he's making a point as Jesus always does. In Mark chapters, in Mark chapter three, he actually calls, goes and calls out his disciples. And in verse 13, it says this afterward, Jesus went up to a mountain, called out the ones he wanted to go with him, and they came with him. These are the 12. I'm not going to name all 12, 12 of them, but the first two, the first three here are important. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. following the demand to hate father, mother, spouse, children, brother, sister, he also tells them that they must hate life itself. The point Jesus is making is that when we turn to Jesus, when we follow Jesus, we are turning away from all of the earlier markers of our identity. 
When Jesus called Simon, James, and John, they were no longer fishermen or boat owners or farmers. They had become apprentices of Jesus. And he gives them new names. And this is a big deal when Jesus does this because who gives you your name? Your parents. I got you. It's okay. You weren't ready for that one. But I got, I'll, throw, I'll, throw you, I'll throw you a softball there. Your, your mom, your father, your parents. Most of the time. Jesus, in changing their names and giving them new names, he changes their paternity. And then Jesus takes on the role of their father. And this is what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus he must be born again or born of the spirit. Symbolically and spiritually, our fathers and our mothers are replaced by a new parent and a new loyalty. And to be born again means to be born into a new family, not defined by biology or contract or manipulation or brainwash, but by a loyalty that we choose, a loyalty to this body, a loyalty to the kingdom, a loyalty to Jesus. When we crucify ourselves, when we hate our father and our mother and even our own lives, when we are born again, We are given and we have established a new identity focused on Jesus, filled with Jesus, directed by Jesus, following Jesus. Jesus' words to Nicodemus were hard and at the time a little bit weird. And when Nicodemus walked away, I doubt he got it right away. I'm sure that as little Nikki walked away that night, Jesus knew that he was going to get it. But if it were me, I'd just throw my hands up in the air and be like, he's never going to get it. They're never going to understand. I'm a little dramatic. I don't know if you could tell. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knew the heart of Nicodemus better. So tonight, I'd like to do Nick at Night Continued. I don't know if any of you remember Nick at Night, but like the instant gratification where you'd get like the two-parters, like back-to-back. No, okay. Everybody's like all brainwashed by Netflix and next episode, next episode. Are you still watching? Don't judge me, Netflix. Nick at Night continued. And so we, encou- we encounter Nicodemus two more times in the book of John, three times in total. The first David walked us through when Nicodemus approached Jesus, questioning and wondering and curious. And I would even venture to say Nicodemus was starting to deconstruct. Nicodemus wanted to know Jesus. Nicodemus was curious about Jesus. But following Jesus would cost Nicodemus everything. The second time we see Nicodemus is in John chapter 7. Jesus is in Galilee with his disciples. His disciples are trying to talk him into going to this big festival in another city. Jesus refuses, but sends his disciples on anyways. But Jesus is a little sneaky sneak and sneaks off to the festival. I kind of imagine in a disguise, you know, like the nose and the mustache kind of disguise. But I don't know if those were around at that time, so probably not that. But he sneaks off to this festival and a couple of days into this festival, Jesus starts to teach, like Jesus always does. And like Jesus' teaching always did, it made people mad. And the biggest group that got the maddest was, can you guess it? The Pharisees, gold star for whoever said it, over here. 
So they send the Pharisees send temple guards to arrest Jesus, but they return to the Pharisees empty-handed, and that's where we pick up in our story in John 7:45. It says when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, "Why didn't you bring him in?" The guards responded, "We have never heard anyone speak like this." The Pharisees mocked, "Have you been led astray too?" Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant to the law and God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's been given a trial? He asked, and they mocked him and said, Are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see from yourself. No prophet has ever come from Galilee. Religious people are mad. Shocker. Jesus wasn't arrested and lots of people are believing in him and they're following him. So the Pharisees, they try to make a distinction. They try to make it okay by saying these people are ignorant. They don't know the law. They don't know scriptures. They don't know what is right from wrong. They're not educated. They're not smart. They don't even know how to read. So what they're saying here is that there's absolutely no way that someone as smart and as dignified as them could ever believe in Jesus. They know so much better. Which is why I love where Nicodemus is positioned in this story. Because he has been present the entire time because he is one of them. He's one of the smart. He's one of the intelligent. He's one of the educated. He's one of the dudes who actually know how to read. And he's positioned in the stories to prove the Pharisees wrong. Nicodemus wasn't just religious or educated or intelligent. He had met Jesus. This is why I think Nicodemus was deconstructing. is because he didn't come right out and defend Jesus. He doesn't present arguments as to why Jesus might be right. He doesn't discuss the difficult truth that he's been wrestling with since he met Jesus. He doesn't talk about being born again or anything Jesus said to them that night. He rocks the boat just enough to show the Pharisees that he's starting to question and explore and restore his faith in God. At the start of most people's deconstruction, for me, I won't say most people, at the start of my deconstruction process, I didn't rock the boat too much. I was too scared to get outcast for bucking the norms. Because on some level, deconstruction can cost you everything. And this is what it was going to cost Nicodemus, is everything, if he showed his cards too soon. And for Nicodemus, it wasn't just losing a position in church leadership. It wasn't being told he couldn't be on the worship team anymore. It wasn't being told he couldn't teach children's church anymore. Or even being told he would have to go to a new church. Following Jesus would cost Nicodemus his livelihood, his wealth, his reputation, and his identity. Nicodemus stands to lose everything he'd worked for since he was young. And the thing about being a Pharisee is that you didn't just fall into being a Pharisee at the age of 34. Like you just kind of fall into being a leader at a church. (laughs) The thing about being a Pharisee is that people, they are trained in the Torah since they're like two or three years old. They, they start them memorizing, like parroting back the Torah, making sure they know the law from two and three years old. For, so for Nicodemus, following Jesus would cost him everything he's devoted his life to since he was a toddler. 
That's a big price tag. He rocks the boat just enough and shows that he knows the law by being like, hey, should we really try and convict the man without putting him on trial first? He pushes back just enough. Luke 14, 26 through 27. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, spouse and child, brothers and sisters, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There are 23 countries, including Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Syria, that have declared apostasy a crime punishable by death. Apostasy is renouncing your religion. And in the countries that I named, the national religion is Islam. And anybody who renounces that for any reason could be put to death. And, and this just going to be open and honest and transparent is a little triggering to talk about stuff like this for me because the circles that I grew up in youth groups and youth pastors would dedicate whole nights to like uh, persecution and say stuff like if somebody came and held a gun to your head and asked if you were a Christian would you be able to say yes and so like you grew up with this fear of like oh my gosh if I'm in like Edison Mall and somebody comes up to a, uh, my face with a gun like am I going to be able to tell them I'm a Christian I don't know these are the traumatic, triggering things I grew up with. And no wonder I'm so normal and well-adjusted. But Jesus doesn't want us to die. Jesus doesn't want his followers to die. And he's not speaking of a literal cross. Although for some in the Bible, they did lose their lives. But Jesus wants all of his disciples, including us, to be sure that our life means something in full dedication to the gospel. Not our will, but his be done. To be a disciple in antiquity in the time that Jesus walked the earth was to place one's teacher or rabbi in a position normally held by their father. To become a disciple meant that once you found a teacher who you wanted to follow, your allegiance would be to them and they would replace your parents and your family and those who you love. Jesus was not speaking of a literal hatred for their families. Because like I said, just turning on hate and turning off love for people in your life is not an easy thing to do. It's impossible. But Jesus rather is asking them to consider their allegiance. Following Jesus means to lay down old identity markers. I'm not a musician I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not just a good speaker. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not a parent. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not fill in the blank for yourself. I'm a follower of Jesus. What Jesus is asking is to make everything secondary in terms of the kingdom and our call to discipleship. To take up your cross sometimes means to suffer, but to do so with a purpose to often risk dishonor or ostracism. Being an affirming church has likely done that to some, many, if not all of us. Taking up your cross means to put your trust in your community rather than just yourself. Put your trust in the people in this room and the leadership in this room of the family you have in this room and not just you and your knowledge and your wealth and your possessions. 
It's a paradoxical shift of our allegiance that doesn't make any sense because the people that I'm most loyal to are my family. The people that I would die for are my family, are my partner, my mom, my child, my brother and my sister. Those are the people I would die for. And Jesus is asking to, for us to consider, he's asking his disciples to consider, would you die for your faith community? Would you die for me? And Jesus in John twelve twenty five says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Again, Jesus' teaching was in the doing. And he showed us what it meant to crucify and to give up. And exactly what it meant to hate this life. And Nicodemus witnesses firsthand. The third and final time we see Nicodemus is in John chapter 19. Jesus has been arrested, beaten, and crucified. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. The Bible, the author wanted to be clear that we knew exactly who he was talking about. Nicodemus, the man who met Jesus, the man who defended Jesus is now here. And he brought 75 pounds of perfume ointment made from myrrhs and aloes. Following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of the crucifixion was near a garden where there was a tomb never had been used before. And so because it was a day of preparation for the Jewish Passover and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Nicodemus met Jesus. He heard his difficult truth. He wrestled with the difficult truth of what does it really mean to be born again? He defends Jesus, and now here at the end of Jesus' life, he finally gets it. Just like Jesus knew he would so much in a big screw you to the religious, Jesus sh- Nicodemus shows him exactly where he stands when it comes to Jesus. Nicodemus comes out of secret discipleship, and his loyalty is expressed And the quantity of the myrrh and the aloes and the spices he brings to bury Jesus, 75 pounds of this stuff was expensive. It signifies the wealth that he was laying down. It was a costly offering. But not only that, but it was the cost of coming out of secret discipleship discipleship, taking Jesus' body off the cross and giving him a wealthy man's burial. And he asserts his allegiance as a follower of Jesus. He gave away everything and in the burial of Jesus solidifies his new identity as a disciple of Jesus. Christ crucified, so Nicodemus gave up everything, his life, his reputation, his career, his status, his income. The the burial spices that he brought was probably the last money that he had left after he walked away from being a Pharisee. He estimated the cost of discipleship. And when the rubber met the road, following Jesus was worth everything. 
I struggle to preach this. I really, I really do. Um, it, because in my, in my deconstruction journey, for me, I got to a place where it was supposed to be a simple truth. To love God and to love people. If you love God and love people, you were doing just fine. That is the simple truth that I wanted it to mean. So messages like this, I kind of was like, mm, it's okay. I don't need to preach that. There's plenty of love in the Bible to preach. And there is truth in that. We're to love God and we're to love people. It's, but it's only part of it. As I prayed over this message, and I've tried to figure out how to wrap it up. Verse 28 of our passage tonight just kept coming back to mind. And in the New Living Translation, it says this. But don't start until you count the cost. For who would begin to construct a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's even enough money to finish it? What's the difficult truth? What have we been talking about for the last two months? What is the difficult truth is that following Jesus is costly. Being a disciple of Jesus is going to cost you something. So you might not walk out of here tonight fully on board, like all in. You might not walk out of here and never come back, honestly, I don't know. But don't start until you've counted the cost. Don't take that step until you've begun to count the cost. And I'm not going to end this message to tell you what it's going to cost you because I believe it's all very specific. It's not one size fits y'all. What it's going to cost me is not what it's going to cost you. So as we close, and I'm going to invite the band to come back up, as we close when we move into a time of worship and reflection, can we reflect on Nicodemus's journey? He met Jesus. He heard a difficult truth. He wrestled with a difficult truth. And he counted the cost. He weighed out everything it would cost him, his life, his reputation, his career, everything that he had worked for. And following Jesus was worth giving up everything. Am I telling you you have to quit your job? No. Am I telling you to, to hate your mom or your spouse? No. I'm telling you tonight, I'm asking you tonight, is to count the cost. Because following Jesus is costly. If you'll stand, I'm going to read this verse one more time. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would start construction of a building without first counting the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Father, would you move in this place tonight? Would you speak to our hearts and our minds as we reflect on the journey of Nicodemus? As we reflect on where we're at in our life and in our walk of discipleship. What is it you're asking us to lay down? What is it you're asking us to crucify? What is it going to cost us to go all in on you tonight? I love you and I just invite you and ask that you have your way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.